0: Hello, and welcome to Episode 2 of the Bulgarian History Podcast. Whose 5th century horse tribe is it anyway? Today, I'll be discussing one of the great debates of Bulgarian history, the origins of the Bulgarians. As is so often the case with such things, The shifting contours of this debate have often reflected not only academic interests, but political ones. The shifting sands of European politics have in turn driven competing theories about the ethnic origins of the Bulgarians. Why is this? Well, let's imagine that you are a child in school, and the other students have a variety of national backgrounds. But your background is a bit hazy, you're not really sure where your family is coming from. Sure. You know a bit about where your family comes from, but really not too much. Now, at various times, one or another classmate of yours becomes the most popular, most influential kid, and suddenly their background, Russian, Turkish, Cambodian, whatever it is, acquires particular status. Well, of course, you're likely to use this lack of clarity to your advantage. Now, this may sound like a bit of a strange example, but the point I want to make here is hardly abnormal. Because it's a pretty normal thing to do for people to kind of maybe bend the edges a little bit to put themselves in a more advantageous social situation. To a greater or lesser extent, it's how all of us negotiate over our identities. Well, Gary's just been doing it on a bit of a larger scale. So I want that to be kind of your framework as we discuss this topic. I don't think of the kind of changing theories as being ultimately dishonest, they're just well, normal human behavior. So today, the debate—this debate—is actually really ongoing, and so I'm going to try to give my best balanced account of both the history of this debate and where it stands today. But in my defense, it's pretty complicated. Now there are three main groups which have played some role in this debate: the Bulgars or Proto-Bulgarians, as they're called in Bulgaria, the Slavs, and the Thracians. Now first, I want to describe each group individually. Now, the proto-Bulgarians were a nomadic tribe which spent much of their lives on horseback. They kept cattle, they lived in tent-like houses called yurts, similar to what you might have seen in nomadic tribes on the Eurasian steppe, and they are believed to worship a thunder god named Tangra, common to many of the Turkic tribes of Central Asia. Now, there are two main hypotheses relating to the origin of this name, Bulgar. Either it derives from a Turkic word, meaning to stir or to mix, or it essentially refers to the five clans of the proto-Bulgarians. Either way, I think it's actually a pretty good name. As you're going to see as we discuss this, whatever kind of theory you subscribe to in terms of the origins of the Bulgarians, there's definitely a lot of mixing going on. Now, In general, a lot of early history of the Proto-Bulgarians is really hazy due to a lack of written records. Now, Archaeological and genetic work is ongoing and new things are being learned on a fairly regular basis. But they remain a somewhat mysterious group. Their precise place of origin has been vigorously debated. It is usually placed around modern Afghanistan or, or Iran in the foothills of the Hindu Kush and Pamir Mountains. Now, it appears that they first migrated en masse sometime in the first millennium AD, migrating that is from their original, original homeland. Because, as we'll discuss in the podcast, they're going to migrate a lot of times. Now, prior to the establishment of the first proper Bulgarian Empire, the rural Bulgarians lived in the Pontic steppe around the Volga River north of the Caspian Sea. Now, you can see a map on the website for reference. Now, by this time, they had probably already mixed extensively with the Sarmatians and the Alans, other steppe tribes living in the area. In any case, from this point, even this early point, we really cannot view them as an ethnically homogeneous group. Now, when you think about these kinds of steppe tribes. Think about mobile groups, highly mobile groups, of people who are likely to be very ethnically mixed but also probably have a relatively cohesive identity owing to the realities of a harsh life on the steppe. So while the proto-Bulgarians were definitely mixed in their language and customs, all of these things, might have very well been a mixture of you know, all these things from tribes that they're around, tribes that they're interacting with, at the same time, I think it's fair to really think of them as a group just because living on the steppes is so difficult, it's so harsh, that this tends to really build a lot of group cohesion. You can look at groups like the Sarmatians, the Alan's, the Mongols, any of these groups to see just how powerful this kind of sense of uh, identity and brotherhood can be when you live your life on horseback and you rely so much on your neighbors and your fellow tribesmen. Now, the irony of the proto bulgarians today is actually that their legacy is both great and small. Now, certainly they've had a profound influence on the history of Europe and the Balkans. Yet, as a group, they remain relatively obscure and poorly understood. In fact, very little survives of the proto-Bulgarians in Bulgaria today. Their language has left only a handful of words in modern Bulgarian. They leave few place names, like the Kamchia River, which empties into the Black Sea south of Varna, and in some customs, such as the erection of large stones, known as babi, on which candles were lit. But considering that the Bulgarians get their very name from these people, this is really actually not a lot. Now, some would say to mix like this for the proto-Bulgarians to ultimately kind of fade into other groups and fade into relative obscurity after all their travels and their conquests and their migrations is an indication that the proto-Bulgarians were losers of history. But the reality is that uh, our perceptions of history is that we always think this way. If we haven't heard of them, that they can't be terribly important. But this kind of mindset, thinking, oh, well, you know, I haven't heard much about them, or there's not a lot of research uh, about them, there's not enough kind of sources for me to read, so I guess I can fairly skip them. This is a big problem. This is a, a big fault in how we think about history. I mean... These are people which helped to forge not only the Bulgarians, but which will migrate to several parts of Europe and which will kind of fade into the ethnic mixture of a lot of modern European states. They were important, but we just kind of have to be willing and open to understand that, to learn a bit more about them, even though we might not know so much to begin with. So this idea is important for the entire history of Bulgaria. There are many ways to understand why history is important and why we should look positively or negatively at particular groups. For example, you can look positively at Alexander the Great because he was an incredible military commander. You can also look very negatively at him because his actions led to tens of thousands of essentially unnecessary deaths, uh, unnecessary aside from the fulfillment of his own personal vanity. Now, both arguments are valid, and we should keep them in mind. But, okay, I'm getting on a tangent, but to summarize it here, History is complicated. Don't ever forget that. History is incredibly complicated. And at any moment, at any time when you're studying history, keep in mind that there always will be so many more things that you don't know. And one of the first steps of really getting a grasp of history is appreciating how little you really know. And so in thinking about this kind of in terms of the proto-Bulgarians, we don't know so much about them, but this can't kind of... uh, get us stuck in a particular mindset about them. We've got to be open-minded and think about them in broader terms, I guess. Now, but we do still know some important things about the culture of the proto bulgarians We do know that they were people deeply connected to the horse. Their military relied on the skill of its cavalry to win and ultimately sustain their economy, an economy largely based on gains from military campaigns. Now, as with so many such tribes, they were a very tough people, resilient capable of living with their animals on very limited food and supplies. For example, they were known to eat raw horse meat, which was apparently placed under the saddle and tenderized by the rider. Today, seen as maybe the origin of things like chuck steak and flank steak, this kind of uh, breaking down the tendons of meat. Okay, I also love cooking. Should avoid this tangent as well. Now, they also drank a type of fermented horse milk that was called kumis. So, in essence, when you compare such a man or woman to their equivalent living in a Roman city— there's really just no comparison in terms of toughness and military skill. Now, if you want a more maybe clearer idea of this, you can compare them to the Mongols, who I think in many ways are similar in terms of relying on the horse, the type of things they ate, the type of things they drank, and the types of lives that they lived. Even though there's, you know, well, the Mongols existed this time, but their conquests were hundreds of years apart. But if you want to look at a group about which there's been a lot more historical research, you can probably look in that direction. Now, they were also very highly skilled at metallurgy and working leather. So this is a bit of a difference. That Despite the fact that they were semi-nomadic at times, they did establish trading centers. They did put down roots and develop empires and states and work on things like metallurgy and leather. Now, with these skills, they created elaborately ornamented belts, which demonstrated their social standing. Again, this is showing a somewhat more hierarchical system than a lot of these other steppe tribes would have. You know, when you, everyone's kind of living in the harsh environment of the steppe, it's a bit hard to create these strong hierarchies. But here's where the proto-Bulgarians were a little bit different. As I just said, they did establish several states. We really know almost nothing about them, but we do know that there were several Bulgarian states established prior to even the old great Bulgaria, which I'll talk about later. So we could think of them as kind of maybe a hybrid, a, a semi-nomadic, a semi-structured, semi-hierarchical people. Uh, which maybe are bringing in some elements of the classic steppe tribe, as well as other settled elements. So, in our essence, what all this kind of leaves us with uh, is a proto-Bulgarian tribe whose place of origin, ethnic makeup, size, and role in the first Bulgarian state are all kind of ambiguous. We really just don't know a whole lot. But still, we can kind of uh, clearly differentiate them from the Slavs, from the Greeks, from the Thracians, from all these other groups. Despite the fact that we don't know so much, we definitely know what they were not. They were not Greeks, Romans, Thracians, these more settled peoples. And they were also not the Slavs. So the second of these three groups, and the one whose role seems maybe most clear in the creation of the Bulgarians, as the people are the Slavs. Now, who were? Who are the Slavs? Now, they're a group you've probably heard of referred to as a whole. Uh, you've probably also heard of their individual peoples today. You've got the Russians, the Belarusians, Ukrainians, Poles, Czechs, Slovaks, Slovenes, Croats, Serbs, Bosnians, Montenegrins, Bulgarians, and depending on who you ask, Macedonians. Much more about that later in the podcast. Now, from this list, you can probably gather that the Slavs today are quite a diverse group. They stretch from Central Europe to the Pacific Ocean from the Arctic Sea to the Adriatic Sea, with some interruption for Hungarians, Romanians, and Austrians. But their origins are far more humble. The Slavs as a tribe are thought to originate around the Pripyat marshes in modern Ukraine and Belarus, though some also place them more in Poland. You can reference a map provided on the website to get a clearer idea of the geography. Now, they were largely a group which was disorganized, without a lot of political structure, and this comes into play, this becomes very important later. This is one of their most defining aspects, that they were not so hierarchical, they didn't have these kind of great leaders. They were also polytheistic, and interestingly, they were matrilineal, meaning one traced oneself back through their mothers instead of their fathers. Now, Some believe that because of their loose organization prior to their migrations, They only truly coalesced as a group, uh, really, in this kind of late late antiquity or early medieval period. Now, today, we split the Slavs into three very broad groups. The East Slavs, comprising the Russians, Belarusians, Ukrainians. The West Slavs, Poles, Czechs, Slovaks, and others. And finally, the group most important to us, the South Slavs. The South Slavs today are made up of Serbs, Croats, Montenegrins, Bosnians, Macedonians, and Bulgarians. Now, this is the group which is somewhat separated from the rest of the Slavic peoples by the aforementioned Romanians, Hungarians, and Austrians. The South Slavs are an interesting group, having in their history experienced both far more unity and far more disunity than either the Western or Eastern Slavs. That's something we'll talk about more later. Now, Slavic languages do form a single language family, like the Romance languages or the Germanic languages. Today, the languages of all the Slavic groups mentioned before fall into this language family. As they're related, if you speak one, you can probably understand at least something of all of them, though this will vary. For example, with my Bulgarian, I can understand Serbian fairly well. I can get something out of Russian, but really understand very little Czech or Polish. But still, there's definitely common roots, common grammar, and, well, a lot of these kind of commonalities. Although, I will make the point, I am very grateful to be learning Bulgarian, which is unique among Slavic languages for its lack of cases and possessing a definite article. Uh, Also, Macedonian has some of these characteristics, but again, this is a debate for much later. Now, sometime around the 5th century, before this we really know little about the Slavs, the Slavs began to migrate out in all directions. Now, it's generally believed that the Slavs migrated in search of new lands to settle. As mentioned, they were not very unified or politically developed. So their migrations should be seen as markedly different from the other organized and more militaristic migrations that we see with other tribes. And again, this means that this becomes really important because once they migrate into the Byzantine territories, well, you can imagine if you've got a tribe with a single leader, you kind of know how to deal with them. But what do you do with a tribe that's just a bunch of people? It's a good question. We'll learn more about that in the next few episodes. Now, a third of these groups, the Thracians. Now, The Thracians were inhabitants of the territory of Bulgaria way before this uh, area was incorporated into the Roman Empire. And we do also know not so much about them because they also did not leave written records. Most of what we know about them comes from archaeological sources from their southern neighbors, the Greeks. They appear to have been very numerous and powerful, but like the Slavs, they suffered from poor political organization. Herodotus, for example, the man who was called the first historian, believed that if the Thracians could unite, they could conquer the world. However. Eventually, the Thracians are conquered by the Macedonians, later by the Romans. By the 6th and 7th century, they appear to have largely lost their unique identity and been thoroughly Hellenized. Therefore, when we talk about this period, the Thracians are usually just not discussed, as they're really not any longer a significant or cohesive group. So, what about the evolution of this debate? How has this discussion about the relationship between the proto-Bulgarians, the Thracians, and the Slavs evolved over time? Well, first, during the 1930s and early 1940s, when Bulgaria was allied with Nazi Germany, the story shifted from some of the previous ideas to one that said that the proto-Bulgarian tribes built their empire by exploiting and subjugating the inferior and numerous Slavic peoples. Of course, today the Slavic character of the Bulgarians is Fairly clear and well-understood, well-appreciated. But it's important to remember that at the time, the Bulgarian relationship with the Slavic states in Europe was really, really complex. Emphasizing or even acknowledging the Slavic character of the Bulgarians wasn't as easy in a world where the Soviet Union sought to exploit the legacy of the pan-Slavic movements in an effort to promote communism in Europe. It wasn't easy or simple in a world where Bulgaria's neighbor, Yugoslavia, had control over Macedonia a territory Bulgaria desperately wanted to control in the name of uniting the southern Slavs. Finally, it wasn't easy or simple in a world where Hitler's armies are at your doorstep, and avoiding subjugation requires making a pact with the devil, in essence. So, while I'm not excusing the historical interpretations of this period, I think it's important to understand the context which drove them. Now, if the Slavic peoples are suddenly being seen as inferiors, but the Nazis are willing to accept that, you know, you guys, you're okay. Well, then it kind of makes sense to say, yeah, we're not really so Slavic. And uh, yeah, please don't kill us all and kind of take our country over. Now, again, once we get to the period about World War II, we're going to talk a lot more in detail about the peculiarities of this kind of uh, Bulgarian-German alliance. And it was a very peculiar alliance. But it's interesting to see how this kind of peculiar political situation, this alliance between, a, in many ways, Slavic country and Nazi Germany produced this interesting kind of ideological historical interpretation of the role of the proto-Bulgarians. Now, once the communists took over following the Second World War, it goes without saying that that kind of historical thinking was very quickly abandoned. At this point, a new line of thinking took shape. New now the idea that uh, numerous Slavic tribes absorbed the proto-Bulgarians and in effect civilized them by turning them from bloodthirsty raiders into settled, democratic, egalitarian little proto-communists suddenly took hold. So suddenly, Bulgaria's status as a communist state and its eternal friendship with Russia could be portrayed as entirely natural byproducts of history. Now, as I mentioned, those Slavic tribes were, in essence, very democratic. They didn't have strong hierarchies. They didn't have strong leaders. And so to look at this melding of the proto-Bulgarians and Slavs as, well, the Slavs were bringing their, their civilization, their democracy, all these wonderful ideas down there, played right into the idea that today the Soviet Union was coming into the little Bulgaria and showing Bulgaria the way. So once again, we see history transformed into political ideology, into political propaganda. And it's very understandable why. So what happened after that? Well, in the 1970s, the Bulgarians began to find these troves of amazing gold treasures, Thracian treasures, as well as Thracian tombs. And historians suddenly start to try to kind of emphasize the role of the Thracians in the creations of the Bulgarians as a people. Now, this had the advantage of tying the Bulgarians to these beautiful gold artifacts, as well as putting their ancestors in place of modern Bulgaria as far back as the first Greek histories. Now, we all know today how we revere the Greeks and the Romans in the classical era. So it only made sense that a lot of Bulgarian historians wanted to put Bulgaria in there and say, look, our ancestors were there. Herodotus talked about them. So once again, we see kind of historical, kind of political uh, ideas coming into play and coming in to sort of push the creation of another theory about the origins of the proto-Bulgarians. So finally, the last thing I want to mention here is that there have also been consistent attempts to argue that the proto-Bulgarians were in fact not Turkic, but East Iranian or, or something similar. The reason for this has mostly been the strong negative association of the Turkish, Turkish people of the Ottoman Empire. Now, uh, you can see that all these lines of thinking, all these uh, theories and counter theories, all have their problems. So, where's the debate today? Ultimately, the best scholarship today supports the idea that the Proto Bulgarians were a minority in a ruling class, governing a largely Slavic population whereas the Hellenized Thracians were largely overwhelmed and assimilated. Ultimately, as we'll discuss soon, the merging of the proto-Bulgarian and Slavic groups will constitute one of the fundamental processes of the First Bulgarian Empire. And if we look at Bulgarian language, culture, all these things today, we see that in essence, despite the fact that the proto-Bulgarians were the ruling class and were kind of trying to assimilate the Slavs, Really, in the end, for the large part, the Slavs were the ones who assimilated the proto-Bulgarians. So in the end, what does it tell us? Now, in truth, these kinds of group identities I've been discussing here are all, to a greater or lesser extent, artificially constructed. For a little insight on what I mean, you can reference the work of the UCLA sociologist Rogers Brubaker and uh, particularly his work on groupism. But as you might have caught my drift in this discussion, I really think that this debate has, over time, told us more about who we are than what has occurred in the 4th or 5th century. It's entirely possible that there will never be a fully accepted theory, but that's not always the point. Understanding how and why Bulgarians have contested their ancestry so fiercely for so long is, more than anything about understanding modern obsessions with classification, race, and the strange idea that the actions of your distant ancestors somehow reflect positively or negatively on you, even maybe hundreds or thousands of years later. I'm looking at you in particular, Greece. Now, while it's still important and interesting to strive for a more complete truth on these matters, in the end, we draw lines where it's convenient. When I talk to my Bulgarian friends, I often hear that they have family from Mongolia, France, Greece, Turkey, Russia, and in many other places. Are, are they still Bulgarians? Of course they are. So while I think it's important to get a grasp of this whole crazy debate about where do the proto-Bulgarians come from, what are all these theories, really, just like all history, it's not just as we write the history of the past, even the distant past, we're also writing in some ways a history of ourselves. We're just des- describing to later generations who we are, how we write, how we talk, how we think, and why we do what we do. I want to thank you for listening. Now, this podcast is produced by Martin Christoph. The audio engineer and composer of our theme music is Teddy Raven, and it's written by me. Eric Halsey. Like us on Facebook and register with you on iTunes to help spread the word. Seriously, it makes a huge difference. Also, check out our website at bghistorypodcast.com, where you can find useful resources that will come along with each episode. Also, consider making a donation with the PayPal button to help us pay for all this great stuff. Keep in mind, if you guys help donate, we're going to be really enthusiastic and really pushed to make an even better program for you guys. The more we have the support, and the more references on Facebook, and the more reviews on iTunes we've got, the better job we can do. So I want to thank you. Until next time, Uspěch, or in English, good luck.